The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Some of you know on Sunday morning, we have a program very similar to this, because uh, we do some chanting at the beginning that we don't do in the evening programs on Sunday night and Wednesday night. And one other difference is once a quarter on Sunday morning, we do the refuges and precepts. This is a traditional recitation done in all the different cultures where Buddhism has gone in pretty much the same way. And it's whether you like doing the formal ritual or not, it's actually quite useful reflection. And some people do it every morning. Some people do it periodically. But it's... uh. It'd be nice for those of you who feel some alignment with these teachings to incorporate in your life. So I want to talk a little bit about that and then talk about the refuges and precepts in light of um, looking at wise speech, which is the next topic as we look at the Eightfold Path that we've been studying. So this is Chapter 41 for those who are reading along and Joseph Goldstein's book. Mindfulness, the Practical Guide to Awakening. So it makes a lot of sense. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, striving or wanting to be a great athlete or a great mother or a great father or a great lover or a great friend, a great citizen, or you're interested in becoming wise, compassionate, and free, like probably we all are. That's why we end up at a place like this. We're interested in being free as a human being with a complicated life, with a body that we're not in control of, a world we're not in control of. What does freedom look like? So anybody with any kind of pursuit, it's really helpful to remember the aspiration, whatever it might be. Like those of you who are raising children, you know, you every once in a while you need to lift your head out of the busyness of making the lunch or cleaning up the mess or and remember what it's all about. I want to be there for my child in a way in a way that leads to them becoming a happy human being, right? Or something like that. So you're able you should be able to see or feel your aspiration. What is this about? So this formula or this traditional recitation, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, it is really nothing more than that. Okay, I'm a human being. I have this human life. So what is the purpose? To get as much money as possible until we die? Or to have as many pleasant sense experiences as, as we can possibly have? Or having the maximum number of people like us? or leaving behind something with my name on it. I mean, what what is what is this about? So when we, like if you do it as a, a daily reflection, you're reflecting on your aspiration. What do you place your heart on? Or what do you find actually trustworthy as an aspiration, as a direction, you could say, for your life? And don't expect to get it absolutely right. It's a practice, right? But if you don't do it, 
well, then you're not practicing. You're not going to get better at it. <laughs> so like anything, bringing to mind our aspiration and getting clear about what aspiration, what direction we actually trust, we find trustworthy, it's useful. It clarifies what this is about. So you can see if the Buddha's formulation works, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. Now, you know, if we were raised in a Buddhist culture, like uh, Jack just came back from Burma, spending several months in Burma, as before too, you know, those kind of cultures, people have a strong devotional energy to the idea of Buddha, to this person who lived 2,500 years ago. And of course, some people even deify that human being uh, in the same way that people in other religious traditions tend to make a big deal of the leader or the founder or whatever. But that that sort of more folk, I guess I'd call it, but I don't mean to be negative, folk religious um, orientation only goes so far. Because what's actually value, like as a refuge, is something that's here and now, not somebody who lived 2,500 years ago. It's not much of a refuge. So, but the refuge, like what that person can represent or symbolize about what's true here and now, that can be useful. So like at Common Ground, we don't have a lot of Buddhist paraphernalia, but we have a few things, like a few statues around. And the value might be one to connect us with this lineage that so many women and men have gotten inspired from over the centuries. And even maybe more sort of useful is if that image sort of reminds us of the quality of awakeness, to be awake, to be present, to be fearless, to be willing to be right in the middle, but not burdened or weighed down by being in the middle of our messy, imperfect, complex, changing lives. Right? So that's the whole point of having an image like that is to like, oh yeah, I can I can be fearless right in the middle of things. Or this is the samadhi gesture, the and here, and then this is the fearless, and sometimes the Buddha's touching the earth, like uh, asking the mother, mother nature to vouch for the integrity of his practice. So there are different mudras, they're called different gestures that sort of symbolize, archetypal, archetypally symbolize aspects of, of what is, um, yeah, worthy of cultivating and worthy of respecting and taking refuge in. The word Buddha means awaken. So it's not a name of somebody. It's a term for this awakened quality, being present in life. So we're looking, like, is that trustworthy? What does that look like in me, that awakened quality? Is it something that is useful to remember, to recognize, oh, that's trustworthy. I trust that capacity for this mind to be clear, to be balanced, to feel and see things as they are. 
So the Buddha is always paired with Dhamma. We take refuge in the Buddha, and Buddha knows Dhamma the way it is. So it's really good. The, the Buddha was talking about psychology. He wasn't talking about something out there in heaven or outer space or wherever. This inner space, like within our own mind and heart, right here. Buddha knows Dhamma. This is a refuge. The awakened, fearless, calm, steady presence, connecting, knowing, being intimate with conditions just as they are. So, is that something you can put your heart upon, trust in? The quality of your own mind being intimate with the conditions of your own life. Now, a lot, you know, when we actually look at how we live, we often are living in a way where we're running from that experience of that simple, clear, balanced, relaxed presence, connecting, being intimate with the body, the conditions around me. So, so by making it part of your life, then you can you sort of get that opportunity to ask, well, is that trustworthy? Is that beneficial? Is it supportive of me and others when I orient around Buddha knowing Dhamma? This is actually not a bad answer if a friend asks you, why do you go to Common Ground? Or why are you doing your meditation? Now, you may not use those words because, you know, you can push people's buttons and you don't need to know the use the word Buddha and Dhamma. <coughs> but you can say, I'm... I'm I'm learning to trust or to orient my life around this simple, calm, fearless presence. And I'm using that to show up, to be intimate with whatever shows up in my life, whatever's presenting itself. I find that really useful. I mean, that's a good answer to what we do here. And so... That's something you can do, like if you sit in the morning for the first minute, it doesn't take long, you can just remember what your refuge is. Like, what are you living for? Some of you know Viktor Frankl, he's a well-known psychotherapist, and he was uh, a Jew in the Holocaust and concentration camps in Germany or somewhere in that area during World War II and survived, of course, and later became quite famous. He wrote a book. I think it's the meaning of life, something like that. The man search for meaning, probably women too, but and uh, but one of the ways he would uh, work is like, why, why are you living? Why don't you commit suicide? Like, what is the point? And to see this this path of awakening, like learning more and more how to show up in a full, fearless, relaxed way. Because you may be able to do it in some moments, like when your cat's in your lap and you're done for the day and you've got nine hours where no one's going to bother you. You know, you might be able to be relatively relaxed and present until you fall asleep. But then 99% of the other moments, you're not. There's some degree of tension, some degree of distraction, the mind, the heart, the body's closed down, weighed down, tight in some way. So we're aspiring. And then 
this third refuge really comes out of the Buddha knowing Dhamma. So when we are able to be fully, you know, in some degree at least, fully present with the condition, Buddha knowing Dhamma, then we find a kind of effortless skill, a skillful response or skillful way of engaging the moment, responding to the moment. And we call that Sangha. Sometimes you hear that word, like, I really like the common ground Sangha. And they're using that word in terms of spiritual community. That's one way to, I guess you could translate the word Sangha. But the deeper meaning of Sangha isn't like common ground is a spiritual Sangha. It's when a person is in that liberated place of that awakened quality of the mind being intimate, fearlessly present, then whoever they are, like what they do, what they say, what they don't do, what they don't say, we call that enlightened activity. In the same way that if I was caught in a really neurotic, self-centered state, it would not be enlightened activity. It would be neurotic activity. I'd be defensive, and then I'd be embarrassed about being defensive, and I'd want to convince you that I'm not as ignorant as I appear to be, and that would make me look even... And it would just be messy, right? So that's not enlightened activity, but when there is that more clear, fearless presence connecting, showing up, there's the absence of that self-centered neurotic activity and how we show up, what we say, how we act, it's beautiful. We call that sangha. So you might notice in moments, not for long, a friend is sangha because how she or he is showing up is just beautiful. It's inspiring. It's and and it's nice to be. I mean, it uh, they set in motion good things when someone is sangha, and sometimes you're the sangha. You know, you're in that relatively enlightened place. The mind is clear, not afraid, not caught in greed, and you're connected, and you're responding from that place, that beautiful place. And so your actions are skillful, and even you, if you were mindful in those moments you would be inspired by your own activity. Have you ever, this is a, actually a good, I think this is a good barometer for practice to ask yourself, like let's say in the last two or three weeks, have you experienced your activity in a moment, your way of engaging or interacting with others or even by yourself, have you experienced your activity over the last several weeks in a way that was beautiful, inspiring, um, so that the flavor was a sense of real appreciation for the skill? Not, I mean, it may slip into pride and some self-centered, like, oh, did you see that? You know, I should tell somebody. As if it's not real unless somebody sort of reflects it back to you. But before that, just that very simple, natural skillfulness in life, skillful engagement in life. Have you noticed that? Because that's a sign. It happened. But to really recognize it happening and see it as something that's beautiful, but also impersonal. In the same way that if we're not skillful and some old disposition to be frightened, to be neurotically needy or something that gets triggered in us, 
and we end up acting it out for all to see, we should also see very clearly that that's not beautiful and it's not personal. Both are true. So we can see something's not beautiful, not skillful, without taking it personally, and we can see some activity in our life as beautiful, but also not personal. So that's a good homework assignment to see if you can notice, especially because we'll be talking about ethical conduct the next couple of weeks. Ethical conduct just means how we are in the world, how we're interacting, interrelating with others. And just to see if you can see that sometimes it's beautiful. Well, that's the Sangha that we take refuge in, whether we see it in ourselves or in another. It's beautiful to be around Sangha, whether you're the one who has, in moments, enlightened, beautiful activity, or somebody else, or you're just reading about the person. It's really beautiful to see somebody showing up fully, but not from an egocentric way. Really there, but without an ego stance. And just to see what that activity looks like. And remember, stereotypically, we might think the person is sort of blissed out or sort of above it all. But of course, what that enlightened activity is going to look like is going to be very specific to each personality that it's being expressed through. So my enlightened activity is not going to look like your enlightened activity. Because it's not about um, acting in one particular way. It's really about what does your life look like when your mind is fully present, not afraid, connecting, and then responding to what's real in your moment, in your life. What, what would that look like? And we want to learn to appreciate that because when we take refuge, we want, these are three good, it's like this threesome is a nice collection. So the first, the Buddha is really the subject. And the Dhamma, the Dharma is the object. Subject knowing the object. And then the Sangha is the manifestation, the expression, the activity. So Buddha knows Dhamma and expresses Sangha, enlightened activity. So it, it covers, the three are supposed to cover the full range of who we are in any moment. There's always a knowing, knowing something, and then a response. Sometimes the response is just to sit there and stay quiet. And sometimes the response is to say something or do something. But that's it. That's our whole, you know, each moment is something, the knowing, knowing something, doing something. And we take refuge in that threesome being really beautiful. So that the knowing isn't contaminated by self-centered fear. And then connecting is like we can connect more fully. When I'm caught up in my self-centered dramas, it's not easy for me to connect with you. Have you had a conversation recently where you were lost, tripped up by some self-centered fear or need, and, it, and then there you are in a conversation, but you're not really there. You're just doing your best to fake it, right? Like how, you know, I catch myself sometimes. It's like uh, like the little gestures we do of nodding or, you know, oh yeah, right. And it's like, 
I'm sort of using their superficial cues to feed them back my superficial cues. But I'm not really there in the moment because I'm think my drama, my sort of internal drama is what's relevant. So it's really hard. And then how can I actually respond in an enlightened way, a skillful way, if I'm not really there? How could I even know what the appropriate response is? We don't. We're just sort of shooting in the dark. And often, and then worse, you know, we respond, we engage the moment, but we're not really connected, so our way of engaging isn't really appropriate. But then we spend a lot of energy pretending that it is appropriate or rationalizing why it was appropriate. It's like we want to bend the facts to fit our response. Instead of honestly going, well, that wasn't really a skillful way to respond, to show up. Oops. Because we, uh, you know, we're sort of protecting our ignorance, which is not a refuge. So, and then the second part of this recitation is we do, we take refuge in the five precepts. And this, this is just a deepening commitment to non-harming. Because as we've been talking about with right view, the more we see that everything in our experience is lawful, there's a lawful unfolding. Things just don't land from outer space. So if we're feeling a little upset right now for whatever reason. If we could, if we had the time and the interest, we could see how this feeling of being upset is the very lawful unfolding of what came before. It's not, it's actually neither good nor bad. Even if I was being really unskillful now in gossiping about somebody and putting somebody down, on the one level, we'd say, well, that's unskillful because it's setting emotion suffering for me and others. But it's also true that it's lawful. So the fact that I'm gossiping, the fact that I'm gossiping about this person, the fact that I'm using these words to gossip about that person, all of that is the natural lawful unfolding of what got set in motion, right? So... The more we see the lawfulness, the more we can see that some lawful unfoldings lead to things getting heavy and tight, suffering, and some lawful unfoldings within our minds and hearts lead to things becoming lighter and easier, right? We see that. We have a bad day. We start taking things personally. We start getting averse. And we, we can literally, in a very short time, create help for ourselves and for those around us. In the same way, we could be in a really good place and have a lot of immunity so that the normal triggers don't trigger us. And we respond in a really generous way, in a really uh, uplift, uh, uplifting, sort of with an uplifting energy. And it's contagious too. So we can sow the seeds for hell and then hell comes. Or we can sow the seeds for release and happiness. So we've been talking the last few weeks about how with wisdom, the wisdom end of the path, the first stage is just getting that everything is lawful. Things are unfolding lawfully. And you see how that inspires us to study the lawfulness. Like, well, how does, how do things become hellish for us? 
what was set in motion? What was reinforced? How come sometimes things are really light and easy and beautiful? What got set in motion? How did that lawfully unfold? So we, once we discern that it is a lawful universe, then we're inspired to study it. In the same way that people who are obsessed about business and making money, they do the same thing appropriately. Or people who want to be good parents, they do the same thing. They observe the lawfulness. Like when I treat my daughter this way, she rebels and does this, you know, and when I relate to my daughter this other way, you know, things are more harmonious and we figure out, we solve the problems that need to be solved and we go forward. Well, everything is lawful, which means that if we study the lawfulness, we can begin to understand why things go this direction and why they go this other direction and we can begin to participate in how things unfold, which means it overcomes a sense of helplessness. We don't hold all the cards. Everyone knows that, right? I can't just stab my fingers and make myself happy. But is there anybody in the room who thinks they have no cards to play and being happy? It's like your happiness or unhappiness is completely out of your hands. Anybody think that? We all sense that we're somewhat responsible for our happiness or unhappiness. We have cards to play. But how sophisticated are we? I'm like, how clearly do we understand how to set emotion happiness for ourselves? How to avoid unhappiness? Like, if a, a messed up 17 year old, like a niece or nephew of yours, or if your parent, you know, your, one of your sons or daughters came to you and said, I can't stand life. I can't handle anymore. Please. Give me a 10-page report on how to lawfully set emotion happiness. You know, distill everything you've learned from your life, observing the lawfulness of happiness and unhappiness and how it came to be for you. Write it down for me in a very articulate way so I'll know the math. Like, what would we say? I, I mean, it's good to be honest. Like, well... I don't really know. I mean, I know some, I mean, but we have some clues. But it's interesting that we haven't really distilled what life has taught us. So this is the development of wisdom. It's lawful, which means we can be skillful about setting emotion wholesome results and avoiding unwholesome results. Because it's lawful. And we have some cards that we're playing. We're not helpless. How we relate is a big card, a big intervention. I can relate in this way, or I can relate in this other way. And you see how that naturally leads to this whole world of ethical conduct. Because once we understand that it's lawful, then we begin to appreciate what well, some motivations are not worth acting on. When I'm really like needy and feeling insecure, like acting on those those motive forces in my heart, like with my wife or with my friends, it's counterproductive. The fact that I need them to acknowledge me makes me feel insecure. Now, I can't make my insecurity go away, but I can intervene 
like I can restrain myself, refrain from acting out that neediness because it doesn't help. It's not that it's wrong. It's just not functional. It isn't, doesn't lawfully lead to what I like. A lot of the ways we cause ourselves um, suffering, it's not that we don't have the motivation or we don't have the desire to be happy. We do. We just have the wrong motivation. Like the intention does, that intention doesn't actually lead to happiness. We think it will. You know, it's like eating something when we think it's going to make us happy, but it doesn't. Watching one more thing on the internet, we think it's going to make us happy, but it doesn't. Staying up late and doing this or that, we think it's going to make us happy, but it doesn't. So, this a lot of the world of ethical conduct is about wisely refraining or restraining ourselves from doing what life has taught us doesn't work, doesn't lead to the happiness we actually desire. So we we do our best to put the brakes on. Honey, that's not going to help. I know, I know you want to do that. On the surface, it seems like it's going to help, but it doesn't. So the first, you know, way, one of the first ways at least, that we act out is with our words, our speech. And, you know, being social beings, it's really easy to set in motion suffering for ourselves and others with our words. Probably for us, given that we're less likely to be people who are stealing and killing and, you know, doing terrible things out in the world, Probably a lot of our unskillfulness, setting in motion the cause, that's what we mean by unskillful. Setting in motion causes for suffering for ourselves and others. That's the definition of unskillful. Most of our unskillful activity usually revolves around words. Whether they're internal words within our own mind or we're saying them out loud. And I bet there are a lot of people in this room that at some point in your life said something that maybe now you wish you didn't, and the pain that got set in motion from those words is still reverberating in your mind and body, right? Anybody still have pain reverberating from words you spoke? Anybody words you spoke over 30 years ago? Yeah, probably. Probably some of us, you know. I remember saying something to my brother when, you know, I was probably, I don't know, 12 or so, and he was 8 or 7, you know, I, that I wish I hadn't said. He had a turtle, and uh, that he had got out of a pond or a lake, and he was doing his best. He was only like 7. He didn't really know how to take care of a turtle, and the turtle wasn't doing so well, and he loved that turtle. And I said something, I forget why I was mad at him, but I said something to him, uh, basically guilt tripping him about not taking care of his turtle or killing his turtle or something like that. And I'm sure it cut deep. And, uh, I still regret, I still feel regret, the pain of regret for saying that. It doesn't mean I don't forgive myself. I totally get that it's easy for me to make mistakes and to act out in ignorant ways. But it still hurts. And that's actually a good hurt. That kind of remorse is a good hurt. 
because it's basically saying to me, honey, don't do that. <laughs> you know, don't hurt people. Don't take the power we sometimes have to say something to another person as a way of sort of demonstrating our power because it hurts. Not, not only the other person, of course, but it hurts us to be mean. It doesn't feel good. It feels tight to do that. So the Buddha talked about right speech in four ways. Tonight we'll just talk a little bit about the first, which is a commitment. To say it in the positive is a commitment to truth or avoiding speaking what is not true. And then avoiding using words as a weapon, so slander, so you're specifically saying something to harm, whether it's true or not. I mean, you can use the truth sometimes. Like what I said to my brother about the turtle, it was sort of true. But it's not that it was necessarily his fault, but that's why it hurts so much, you know, for him. So there's slander or hurting, you know, using words as weapon. And then there's harsh speech. So it's not so much that it's not true, and it's not even so much that you're intentionally trying to harm somebody, but you're unaware of the force of your words. You're kind of tripping, like being loud or using provocative speech, because there's a lot of power. So sometimes we're just tripping over power with our words yelling, screaming, and being unaware of the effects of what that is. Not being, kind of, not owning responsibility for the energy we're putting out in the world. So that's harsh speech. Big speech. Doesn't mean that some moments really require some volume. So it doesn't mean you have to be meek and quiet. It just means it's really about the unawareness of, and some people have this more than others, you know, where they're just sort of a bull in a china shop, you know, kind of knocking things over with their words and unaware. It's not like they're trying to be mean. That would be slander. They're not trying to be mean. They're just unaware of the power of their words. And then the fourth is the most subtle, but in some ways it's very common for a lot of us. Idle speech. It's usually translated as, but it's, you know, how we often fill up our lives talking about things that don't really need to be talked about. And a lot of times we talk because we're a little bit uneasy with quiet. So we just fill up space. We talk about the Minnesota Vikings or the twins or the weather or politics or other people. Now, of course, there can be good reason to talk about those things. And sometimes we talk about something like weather, and it's really a way of saying, it's really nice being with you. And so the conversation about weather isn't really about the weather. It's a way of being close to another human being for a few seconds. How's your daughter doing? We may not care about their daughter, but it's our way of saying, I don't know you well, but I know you have a daughter and I'm seeing you and I want to acknowledge you as a human being for a few seconds. I don't really want you to go into a 15-minute conversation about your daughter. And the person generally knows that. They know that 
The other person just wants a simple answer. Oh, she's great. She's at school now. And that's it. But the whole interaction wasn't idle speech. It was our kind of cultural way of saying, I see you. You're a human being. I'm a human being. We have this moment together. May you be happy. I mean, but we don't get away with that. We couldn't say that. <laughs> you know, I'm a human being. You're a human being. People would think we're a little weird. So we have our other ways of doing it. So that's, that's not idle speech. You have to look at the motivation. So if you're there just sort of talking, it's really nice to get a sense of what's the underlying motivation. Like, is there a fear of stopping? And sometimes we don't want to stop talking because we're kind of filling up space. We kind of unconsciously know what we're doing, but we don't want to own it. Have you ever been in a conversation like that? No, we never catch ourselves, but we do catch other people doing it. Right, where they're just going on and on, and you can kind of sense they're afraid of stopping this conversation. They're afraid of basically being who they are, being feeling what they feel. And so the conversation kind of keeps them from that moment where it all stops, and there's nothing but feeling what we feel. So that's what we're trying to avoid with idle speech, this commitment to idle speech. So let's just say, I'll say a few words about truthfulness and then open it up because we have all learned a lot about all, all four of these qualities of speech. And remember when we say in the Eightfold Path, the word sama is used like right speech, right view, right intention, right action, right livelihood, right concentration, right mindfulness, right energy. So these are the eight steps or the eight pieces of the Eightfold Path. The right, it's not about right in the way we normally use it. There's not a good translation. One way some teacher talked about it or academic talked about it as an evenness. So right speech is an even speech, which means it doesn't leave a trace. So when you have right speech, it's not like good speech, but it's it's speech that isn't creating reverberations. So it's the right word at the right time. The Buddha had a way of saying that, actually. Practitioners, there are five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, spoken with a mind of loving kindness or with inner hate. You should train yourself thus. Our minds will remain unaffected and we shall utter no evil words, unskillful words, and shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness. We shall abide pervading that person with a mind imbued with loving kindness and starting with him or her, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and ill will. And then later, one speaks at the right time in accordance with facts, speaks what is useful, speaks of the deeper teachings. One's speech is like a treasure, uttered at the right moment, accompanied, accompanied by reason, moderate and full of sense. And then one other passage from the Buddha. Practitioners, possessing five factors, speech is well spoken, not badly spoken. 
It is blameless and beyond reproach by the wise. It is spoken at the proper time. What is said is true. It is spoken gently. What is said is beneficial. It is spoken with a mind of loving kindness. Now that's a pretty high bar for our speech. Can you imagine if we lived up to that, we wouldn't be saying a lot. (laughs) But eventually it would become our habit, you know, to find just what needs to be said, find the right time to say it with the right attitude. And it's not about whether it's true or not. It has to be true and beneficial, right? Because a lot of times we feel like, I notice this with my wife, I say things that I think are true, but not because it's beneficial, but because it's like a kind of an ego trip. I possess the truth, so I'm going to say it. And uh, it never feels good you know, afterward, and I'm sure it doesn't feel good to her either. Now this, the thing about this commitment to truth in particular, and uh, and then it'll be interesting to hear what you have to say, you know, the whole path is predicated on the commitment to truth. The whole point of being mindfully aware is awareness seeing things as they are. So, This is not a small factor. The Buddha, in many, many ways, talked about this commitment to truth. Seeing things as they are, speaking what we know to be true. Not leaving anything out, not adding anything, not coloring it. There's this uh, time he was teaching his young son the Buddha had a child before he became a wandering ascetic and eventually came back to the place where his son was and then the son became a novice monk at the age of seven. And he gave a little teaching to his son soon after that point. And he, he was, they were, I think, washed his feet. They often, when they get to where they're camping, would wash their feet at the end of the day. And then he had a little water just a little water in his bowl. And he said, Rahula, do you see the water in this bowl? The little water. Says, Rahula, his son said, yeah, I see it. And the Buddha said, in the same way, someone who's who can justify even telling a little lie is like this. They just have a little water. you know, not They don't have much going for them, in other words. And then he takes the water and he throws it out of the bowl. Says, you see how empty this bowl is? In the same way, someone who's willing to justify even a little lie, it's as if they're empty. You know, they have no nothing of value. And then he turns the bowl over. So the real graphic way for a son, you know, like being just a little water, being empty, being upside down, that's what it's like. And then the next part, the Buddha says, I can't see anything that anything bad can't see anything bad that a person who's willing to tell a deliberate lie is not is uh, unable to do, right? Meaning, if you're willing to tell a little lie, you're willing to do anything that's unskillful, right? If you can justify, consciously justify bending the truth, well, then you can justify taking something that's not yours. You can justify harming another person. So, this commitment to truth is really important because it's not easy to pin down what the truth is. So how to be really vigilant about speaking the truth 
without getting tight. Because getting tight, like being really attached to being the person who speaks the truth, doesn't help you speak the truth. What really helps to speak the truth is being relaxed and clearly present in all the moments. Because what we miss is the emotional charge. When I'm feeling needy, that charge of feeling needy distorts the mind. And then it seems like I'm speaking the truth when I'm not. Right? It's always when we're intense and caught and being like pushed by the emotional winds that we bend the truth or lie or hold, you know, don't say something that should be said or say something that shouldn't be said. So it'd be really nice to talk now, but also next week, just to, without judgment, to notice all the ways your mind relates to speaking the truth, how you hold back, what it feels like when you feel like you have a lot of integrity here, what it feels like when you don't. So any questions or experiences you'd like to share with the group tonight? What comes to mind? About right speech? Or just more specifically about truthfulness? Yeah, first you, Casey, and then behind. Yeah, yeah. Because mindfulness, um, if you didn't hear Casey, as you become more sensitive, you do see more in yourself and in others. And that it is like a power. And you can see exactly where the, you can see what the person themselves don't see necessarily. And how they're bending the truth or how they're in denial. And it's really easy to judge them or even worse, use it to kind of humiliate them or to have power over them. Instead, what we want to do is we want to see how that is the natural, like whatever we're observing in them and whatever we're observing in ourselves, it's the natural, lawful unfolding of what came before. So this sort of big, resonant, of course it's like this. And to have compassion, if it's unskillful, if what you're seeing in another person is how they're suffering, then we should have compassion. Because those same forces are active in us. Maybe not in the same way, maybe not at this time. But something like that happens in us as well. Yeah, thanks Casey. I don't know your name. Melissa? Oh, Ellis, that's right. So if you didn't hear, she asked, Ellis asked, you know, there are times we lie, so what do we do with the resultant pain or of regret when we lie? or the guilt, or whatever that feeling is. Well, the first thing we want to do is acknowledge how lawful it is to feel weighed down by
by the law or by the lie. And uh, it's the not willingness to acknowledge the weight of the lie that keeps us running. So, but when we finally stop running, keeping busy or rationalizing it, we realize that doesn't feel good. And we don't need to make that yucky feeling worse than it is, but we also don't need to make it better. Like, it's not dangerous to feel regret. There's nothing wrong with feeling the pain of regret. It's like information. In the same way that if you did something really beautiful and skillful, it would feel good in your heart. When when the mind-body, this natural process we call me, when it does something unskillful, by definition, it hurts. That's how we know it's unskillful, that the resultant feeling is unpleasant. And that's like the law of karma. When there's an unskillful intention and it's acted on, then there's an unpleasant feeling at some point. Something arises that's unpleasant. So, And if it doesn't, then it wasn't unskillful. Or you're not aware of it. Right? Because a lot of times we do unskillful things, but we're practicing distraction. This is, mindfulness doesn't let, let us get away with that, because we're practicing, like Casey was suggesting, being sensitive. So we want to understand, like, how lawful that was. Given all of those causes and conditions, the lie that you spoke was the lawful, natural arising in that moment. Doesn't mean it was skillful but it couldn't have been other than what it was, given all of that that came before. So we want to appreciate, okay, this is what happened, this is how it was, and now it feels like this. And the way we transmute, we turn the pain of regret into something good. It's like a monument to us, to ourselves, saying, honey, don't do that again. So that pain is literally a beautiful thing now. It hurts, but it's a reminder. Be careful about your speech. It's easy to set emotion suffering. Don't forget this. So we build this monument. It's called regret. And of course, that if the more we follow that, listen to that regret, and we avoid repeating that same mistake, then we begin to sense the trustworthiness now of our habit energy. Like now, and I bet this is true for all of us around some things, now we could be in a place that might trigger some of our negative activities, but we know we're not going to follow through, right? Hopefully, those of you who are in a committed relationship, hopefully you can be around somebody who's really attractive to you, but you're not afraid of flirting or sort of trying to hook up with that person because you know that I don't do that. And doesn't mean that you don't find other people attractive. It means that you trust your mind. And if you don't, then you want to work on that. You know, if you don't trust yourself, you will, first of all, you want to avoid those situations where that might get triggered until you have that kind of confidence. Thanks, Ella. Bring that up. What else comes to mind? Yeah. Yeah. So, in the desire to not tell lies, I mean, I guess that means that we have the freedom to to want to pursue the truth. So, 
I guess my question would be, does the freedom of truth or freedom of speech or principle also include the freedom to offend? To offend? Well, yeah. You know, I guess one way to think about that is sometimes our words will hurt somebody, cause pain to that person. But what's the motivation? Is the motivation to hurt them? Or is the motivation to set in motion something that's good and healing for as many people as possible? Because clearly speaking truth to power, for example, you know, as that phrase goes, can cause pain, you know. But it might be like sometimes the medicine that we need or another person needs is the truth. But are you saying it because you're right or you want to be self-righteously right? Or are you saying it because it's the right thing at the right time? And are you saying it with understanding like, although this person is going to be hurt, I care about them. I'm not trying to hurt them. I'm trying to help them. And this is really important in terms of you know, living in this world with all of its injustices and and really wanting to show up in a skillful way around issues around racism or class differences, inequities, political and social problems. And we feel deeply about, and we can, and we do, you know, when you watch politics, people use words and lies and the volume, the sort of harshness of the words for all the wrong reasons. You know, greed, anger, and delusion, basically. But we don't want to use our words for that reason. We want our, our words are like medicine. Words should be used because this is the right medicine in this situation at this time. But sometimes medicine is quite strong. So it doesn't mean we can't have loud, a loud voice. It doesn't mean that it won't get a reaction that it may upset people or words. But we're not it's not about upsetting them, it's about taking care of people. That's why we're speaking. Why else? You know, what is the advantage of harming or hurting others unless it's healing in some way? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, CD. Uh, it seems like if you don't say anything, you're enabling someone in their error, which is actually doing them harm. So not saying anything is actually harming someone. That's right. And we have to really look at the habit energy because some of us, and we'll end here, some of us tend not to speak up and those people really need to err on, make a few mistakes by speaking up a little too much until you really see what too much is. So you have to err at both ends of the spectrum. Otherwise, how do you know where the right middle is, the sweet spot is? And if you're always speaking up, you have to err on keeping quiet until you really realize, okay, I should have spoken up more. Yeah, it has to be quick, Andy. I just want to say that what I found in my life is it's really important to try and be as humble as possible. And assume that you don't know everything, and that, you know, maybe not speaking up right now, you know, thinking about it. Yeah, no, I think that's a... And part of speech, part of what we realize in speech, too, is the truth... Nobody holds the truth. So we're, and we want to speak. I think that's probably what Andy was pointing to. We want, when we speak, we want to realize that this is how it looks from this very conditioned mind, culturally conditioned, 
coming from this perspective in this moment, this is how it looks. That's how I know. And if enough of us do that, well then together we have a closer approximation of what's really going on. Yeah, thanks Andy. That's a good place to end. Let's take a breath together. Let go of the words. Appreciating being together. Simple experience of Buddha, this awakened quality of the heart, connecting with Dhamma the way it is now. A beautiful response of compassion, joy, peace, fearlessness. So may our lives be a way of setting this emotion. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.